0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You've all heard of Las Vegas, Nevada, but very few of you know of Las Vegas, New Mexico. I learned about it when I was a kid from my dad, who had been raised on a ranch not far from there, a ranch which later became a part of Philmont Boy Scout Ranch. Dad liked to tell me stories, and I was a good listener. And that part of the country was full of stories of the Old West. Of Kit Carson, whose abandoned adobe house my dad played in next door when he was a kid. Of Lucian Maxwell, who inherited a huge tract of land that included most of New Mexico when he married Lucinda Bobian, the Belle of Taos. And of the gunfighters, the lawmen, and other characters that once frequented the untamed streets of East Las Vegas, New Mexico. The Galenas River separates the town into east and west, and not too many years ago, the east side was home to a wild and tough crowd of people. According to historian Ralph Emerson Twitchell, without exception, there was no town which harbored a more disreputable gang of desperados and outlaws than did Las Vegas. The town was laid out in the traditional Spanish colonial style with a central plaza surrounded by buildings which could serve as fortifications in case of Indian attack. Las Vegas, founded in 1835, prospered as a stop on the Santa Fe Trail. The arrival of the railroad on July 4, 1879, brought with it businesses, development, and new residents. Murderers, robbers, thieves, gamblers, gunmen, swindlers, vagrants, and tramps poured in, transforming the eastern side of the settlement into a virtually lawless brawl. Among the notorious characters were such legends of the Old West as dentist Doc Holliday and his girlfriend Big Nose Kate, Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Wyatt Earp, mysterious Dave Mather, Hoodoo Brown, and handsome Harry the dance hall Rustler, just to name a few. Today, there are 900 buildings that are listed as historic structures in Las Vegas, and this secret isn't hidden from movie producers. You've probably seen Las Vegas, New Mexico, if you've watched any old Tom Mix films. Or Longmire, a favorite of mine on a and also available at Netflix. Or the movie Easy Rider, when the two bikers rode behind a parade. Or the movies Convoy or Red Dawn. The 1994 Kevin Costner film, Wyatt Earp. John Carpenter's Vampires. The High Low Country, All the Pretty Horses, Wild Hogs. And Toby Keith's Beer for My Horses, again, just to name a few. Not bad for a place you've probably never heard of. I don't know if the Old Variety Dance Hall is still standing there in East Las Vegas, but it was there that Sheriff Tom Carson went in to disarm a bunch of rowdy cowboys who were creating mayhem and refusing to obey the town rule that they had to put up their guns. He was followed inside by his friend Dave Mather, also acting in the capacity of a lawman in the area at that time. Witnesses outside heard the sound of gunfire seconds after Carson walked in and soon after, the sheriff appeared at the saloon doors, then crumpled to the street, his body riddled with bullets. A heavy barrage of gunfire continued inside, and two bloody cowboys ran out, headed for the stable and escape. Inside, two more cowboys lay on the floor, one dead, the second bleeding profusely. Dave Mather, wearing two guns, walked out without a scratch. Born to see Captain Ulysses W. Mather in 1851 in Westbrook, Connecticut, Dave Mather was abandoned by his father at age two, growing up with his maternal grandfather, Josiah Wright. By the age of 19, Dave and his 15-year-old brother Josiah left home and signed up to work on a cargo ship headed for New Orleans. From New Orleans, they went to Dodge City, Kansas and got involved as cattle rustlers and outlaws along with Dave Rudabaugh and Milton Yarberry. When a local cattle rancher ended up murdered, a warrant was issued, and Dave made fast track for Decatur, Texas. It was 1873, and for a while, Mather worked as a buffalo hunter on the Llano Estacado, where he very likely met Wyatt Earp, Bad Masterson, and Bill Tillman, who appear in and out of his life during the next few years. The first documented evidence of Mather's career occurred in 1879 when he was recruited by Bat Masterson to serve in a posse to enforce the claims of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway in the Royal Gorge Railroad War. Bat Masterson, whose story follows this one, had made his reputation with a gun and had become Sheriff of Ford County, Kansas, by 1876. By 1879, Santa Fe Railroad officials had wired Sheriff Bat Masterson, asking him to recruit a company of men to battle the forces of the Denver, Rio Grande, and Western Railroad who were contesting the right-of-way through the Royal Gorge near Pueblo, Colorado. As a Kansas sheriff, Bat had absolutely no legal authority in Colorado, but this didn't prevent him from enlisting a large company of men. Among Masterson's recruits were such noted gunmen as Ben Thompson, Mysterious Dave Mather, John Joshua Webb, and very possibly Doc Holliday. The end of Masterson's involvement came on June 12, 1879, when he surrendered a roundhouse his men were holding at Cannon City, Colorado. The war between the railroads was finally settled out of court. Mather then relocated to East Las Vegas, New Mexico. There, Mather joined John Joshua Webb, Dave Rudabaugh, and several others in what came to be called the Dodge City Gang, the leader of which was Hoodoo Brown. The gang monopolized the prostitution and gambling in the town while they accumulated political power simultaneously. Hoodoo Brown became justice of the peace and Dave Mather was named U.S. Deputy Marshal for the area by Governor Lou Wallace. The fix was in for Mather, who reportedly took part in more than one stagecoach robbery at the time, but was acquitted. On January 22, 1880, a gang of drunken cowboys decided to terrorize a dance hall in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and Marshal Joe Carson responded to a call to intervene. Mather, his friend, also responded. Cowboys T.J. House, James S. West, John Dorsey, and William Big Randall had been in and out of saloons all day, making no trouble, but unwilling to give up their guns in violation of the town's rules. When Carson confronted the Cowboys inside Close and Patterson's Variety Hall, shooting ensued, and in the following seconds, the marshal, his body riddled with bullets, fell out of the hall doors, dying. Mather had followed him in, and his guns were still blazing inside. When the firing ended, William Big Randall was lying on the floor mortally wounded, James West was badly wounded and bleeding out on the floor, and a wounded T.J. House and John Dorsey ran out headed for the stables where they made their escape. When the town doctor ran to the scene to attend West, Mather told him it could wait. He was putting him in jail. From that day on, Dave Mather's name became legend. Three days later, on January 25th, 1880, acting Marshal Mather was summoned to an altercation involving Joseph Castello, who, in the heat of an argument with his employees, drew his revolver on them. When Mather arrived, Costello warned him not to approach or he would shoot. Newspaper reports of the incident report that Mather drew his weapon and fired a single lethal shot before Costello could pull his trigger. The coroner's jury ruled that Mather's shooting was justifiable and in self-protection. Mather's career in East Las Vegas was short-lived. On February 6, 1880, the two men who had escaped the January shooting, Dorsey and Henry, had been found in Mora, New Mexico and were returned to the jail in Las Vegas to join their buddy West, still suffering from his leg wound. Under Mather's watch, a lynch mob broke them and their fellow gunmen West out of jail and took them to the windmill in the town plaza to hang them. The windmill had a rope dangling from high above, and although not pretty as hangings went, it would serve its purpose. West, begging for mercy, went first. He was bleeding and had to be carried on a litter, but they strung him up anyway, Only his hands weren't tied, and he was able to slip them beneath the loop of the rope forming the noose and pull himself up. He was screaming for his mother, and then, as his ill-fitting trousers dropped low on his waist, he cried, Please button my pants! It was a sorry spectacle. Tom Carson's widow had brought a gun and put West out of his misery, then turned her remaining bullets on Henry and Dorsey, who were soon writhing on the platform and begging for mercy as well. Henry managed to crawl to the edge of the platform and beg the nearest person to shoot him in the head, and there was no shortage of response from the crowd. During the next month, there were two murders on the same day. The public began to suspect Mather had ties to the town mob boss, and Mather resigned on March 3, 1880. Mysterious Dave did not leave East Las Vegas immediately. He was still there as late as March 19, 1880, when he signed his name to a court document intended to help John Joshua Webb, who had been charged with murder. On June 1st, 1883, Mather was hired as an assistant city marshal in Dodge City, with help from his friend Bat Masterson, and by September he had chased down two train robbers and brought them to justice. After serving only nine months, he was replaced on April 10th, 1884, by Tom Nixon, sparking a feud between the two. The feud was further stoked when the city passed Ordinance Number 83 outlawing dance halls within Dodge City. The ordinance was enforced against Mather's Opera House Saloon, preventing it from operating as a dance hall, but not against Nixon's Lady Gay Saloon, which also featured dancing. In retaliation, Mather then began a price war on beer. He charged only five cents a glass, half the price of his competitors. Nixon and the other Dodge City Saloon owners pressured the beer wholesalers to cut off Mather's supply. The feud resulted in gunfire on July 18, 1884, when Nixon shot Mather, but only wounded him slightly. Nixon posted Bond on charges of attempted murder. Three days later, on July 21, Mather and Nixon got into another confrontation, and this time Mather shot and killed Nixon. Despite supporting testimony from Bat Masterson and Dodge City Sheriff Patrick Shagrue, Mather's case was sent to trial. His attorney obtained a change of venue to Ford County, and the trial began on December 29, 1884. It lasted only three days, and on December thirty first, the jury deliberated only seven minutes before declaring Mather not guilty. The Kinsley Mercury wrote, The verdict was a proper one, as the weight of the testimony showed that Nixon was the aggressor in the affair and that Mather was justified in the shooting. The Dodge City Times noted, The reading of the verdict by the court was interrupted by demonstrations of approval from the audience. Mather's later life was the subject of much rumor and speculation. Because of his notoriety, newspapers often reported rumors of his appearances, often unsubstantiated. On August 14, 1885, it was reported that Mather became the town marshal of New Kiowa, Kansas. There, he is known to have raised a $300 legal defense fund for his longtime friend and partner, Dave Black, accused of murdering a soldier. According to legend, Mather fled New Cairo on September 6, 1885, when he heard rumors that the soldier's company might come after him for defending the murderer of their comrade. No other record of Mather's death exists, and rumors abound as to his possible fate. In an article in the November 1902 issue of Everybody's Magazine, author Edward Campbell Little claimed that Mather had gone to the British Northwest Territories where he enlisted as one of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and while there looted the stage he was sent to guard and escaped with 20,000 pounds. His brother Josiah reports that he was killed by moonshiners in the mountains of Tennessee. This report contradicts Josiah's own version of events as told to his children that he never saw nor heard from David after they parted company at Dodge City. Writing later, in 1954, author William Waters wrote that Mather was employed with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police as late as 1922. William Barclay Bat Masterson, born in Canada, November 26, 1853, spent the first half of his life in what is remembered as the Wild West. During that period, he distinguished himself as a buffalo hunter, Indian fighter during the celebrated Second Battle of Adobe Walls, civilian scout for the U.S. Army, and gunfighter and lawman in Dodge City, Kansas, and elsewhere. In his late teens, he and his brothers, Edward Ed Masterson and James Jim Masterson left their family's farm to become buffalo hunters. During July, 1872, Ed and Bat Masterson were hired by a subcontractor named Raymond Ritter to grade a five-mile section of the track for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. Ritter skipped out without paying the Masterson brothers all of the wages to which they were entitled. It took Masterson nearly a year, but he finally collected his overdue wages from Ritter at gunpoint. On April 15, 1873, Masterson learned that Ritter was due to arrive in Dodge City aboard a Santa Fe train and that Ritter was carrying a large roll of cash, when Ritter's train pulled in, Masterson entered the car alone and confronted him and marched him out onto the rear platform of the train, where he forced him to hand over the 300 that was owed to him, his brother Ed and a friend named Theodore Raymond. A loud cheer then went up from a large crowd who had witnessed the event. Bat was engaged in buffalo hunting in 1874 when he became an involuntary participant in one of the Wild West's most celebrated Indian fights, the five-day siege at a collection of ramshackle buildings in texas known as adobe walls this story needs to be told and bat masterson was there so we'll tell it in full and get back to bats exploits in a few minutes grab a coffee the second battle of adobe walls was fought on june 27, 1874 between comanche forces and a group of 28 u.s bison hunters defending the settlement of adobe walls in what is now hutchinson county texas in the panhandle adobe walls was just north of the canadian river in 1845 an adobe fort was built there to house the post but it was blown up by the traders three years later after repeated indian attacks in 1864 The ruins were the site of one of the largest battles ever to take place on the Great Plains. Colonel Christopher Kit Carson led 335 soldiers from New Mexico and 72 Ute and Jicarilla Apache scouts against a force of more than 1,000 Comanche, Kiowa and Plains Apache. The Indian Army forced Carson to retreat, though he was acclaimed as a hero for successfully striking a blow against the Indians and for leading his men out of the trap with minimal casualties. This is known as the First Battle of Adobe Walls. After the enormous slaughter of the buffalo in the north during 1872 and 1873, the hunters moved south and west into the good buffalo country somewhere on the Canadian, which was then hostile Indian country. In June 1874, ten years after the First Battle, a group of enterprising businessmen had set up two stores near the ruins of the old trading post in an effort to rekindle the town of Adobe Walls. The complex quickly grew to include a store and corral, these known as Leonard and Myers, a sod saloon owned by James Hanrahan, a blacksmith shop owned by Tom O'Keefe, and a sod store used to purchase buffalo hides, all of which served the population of two to 300 buffalo hunters in that area. By late June, two hunters had been killed by Indians 25 miles downriver on Chicken Creek and two more hunters killed in camp on a tributary of the Salt Fork of Red River, north of present-day Clarendon, Texas. The story of the Indian depredations had spread to all the hunting camps, and a large crowd had gathered in from the surrounding country at what they called the Walls. The remaining free-ranging Southern Plains bands, Comanche, Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Arapaho, perceived the post and the buffalo hunting as a major threat to their existence. That spring, the Indians held a sun dance, Comanche medicine man Isatai promised victory and immunity from bullets to warriors who took the fight to the enemy. There are many different figures given for the number of Indians who took part in the attack, with good estimates as few as 230 to 300, and other claims of as many as 1,500. The lower figure is considered by many to be the most likely, but the actual number will never be known. On June 5, 1874, Hanrahan and his party of hunters departed Dodge City for adobe walls. The party encountered a band of Cheyenne Indians on June 7th at Sharps Creek, 75 miles southwest of Dodge, who ran off all of their cattle stock. The party then joined a wagon train which was en route to the Walls, arriving just hours before the major battle took place. Some 28 men were then present at Adobe Walls, including James Hanrahan, 20-year-old Bat Masterson, William Billy Dixon, and one woman, the wife of Cook William Olds. At two in the morning on June 27, 1874, the ridgepole holding up the sod roof of the saloon made a loud cracking sound, although two men nearby thought it sounded like the report of a rifle. According to some sources, Hanrahan awoke the camp by firing a gun, then telling the others that the sound had come from the ridgepole. The reason for his action was that he knew about the attack in advance, but did not tell anyone, afraid that the men would leave the camp, hurting Hanrahan's business. Everyone in the saloon and several other men from the town immediately set to repair the damage. Thus, most of the inhabitants were already wide awake and up at dawn when a combined force of Comanche, Cheyenne, and Kiowa warriors swept across the plains intent on erasing the populace of adobe walls. In Dixon's words, There was never a more splendidly barbaric sight. In after years I was glad that I had seen it. Hundreds of warriors, the flower of the fighting men of the southwestern plains tribes, "'mounted upon their finest horses, armed with guns and lances, "'and carrying heavy shields of thick buffalo hide, were coming like the wind. "'Over all was splashed the rich colors of red, vermilion, and ochre "'on the bodies of the men, on the bodies of the running horses. "'Scalps dangled from the bridles, gorgeous war bonnets fluttered their plumes, "'bright feathers dangled from the tails and manes of the horses.' and the bronzed, half-naked bodies of the riders glittered with the ornaments of silver and brass. Behind this headlong charging host stretched the plains, on whose horizon the rising sun was lifting its morning fires. The warriors seemed to emerge from this glowing background. The Indian force was estimated to be in excess of 700 strong, and led by Issa Tai and by Comanche chief Kwana Parker, son of captured white woman Cynthia Ann Parker. Their initial attack almost carried the day. The Indians were close enough to pound on the doors and windows of the buildings with their rifle butts. The fighting was in such close quarters that the hunters' long-range rifles were useless. They were fighting with pistols and Henry and Winchester lever-action rifles in .44 rimfire. After the initial attack was repulsed, the hunters were able to keep the Indians at bay with their large-caliber, long-range Sharps rifles. Nine were located in Hanrahan's saloon, including Bat Masterson and Billy Dixon, 11 in Myers and Leonard's store, and 7 in Rath and Wright's store. The hunters suffered four fatalities, three on that first day. The two Shadler brothers, asleep in a wagon, failed to survive the initial onslaught, and Billy Tyler, who was shot through the lungs as he entered the doorway of a building while retreating from the stockade. On the fifth day, William Olds accidentally shot himself in the head while descending a ladder at Rath's store. A search following the initial battle turned up the bodies of 15 Indian warriors killed so close to the buildings that their bodies couldn't be retrieved by their fellows. Billy Dixon's story continues. By noon, the Indians had ceased charging and had stationed themselves in groups in different places, maintaining a more or less steady fire all day on the buildings. By 2 p.m. the Indians rode out of range at the foot of the hills, and by 4 p.m. the besieged started venturing out from the buildings to gather relics and bury the Shadlers. The Indians stayed in the distance while deciding how to handle the situation, effectively laying siege to adobe walls. During the second day, the besieged buried or dragged away the dead horses to prevent the evil smell from reaching the buildings. George Belfield's outfit made it to the walls, as did Jim and Bob Cater, while Henry Leese volunteered to ride to Dodge City, Kansas, while two hunters visited the surrounding camps to warn them that the Indians were on the warpath. On the third day after the initial attack, 15 Indian warriors rode out on a bluff nearly a mile away to survey the situation. At the behest of one of the hunters, William Billy Dixon, already renowned as a crack shot, took aim with a big 50 sharps. It was either a 50 70 or a 90, probably the latter that he had borrowed from Hanrahan and cleanly dropped a warrior from atop his horse. I was admittedly a good marksman, yet this was what might be called a scratch shot. This shot apparently so discouraged the Indians that they decamped and gave up the fight. And for you Western history buffs, here's the final say on Billy Dixon's shot. Controversy prevails over the exact range of his shot. Baker and Harrison set it at about 1,000 yards while a post-battle survey by a team of U.S. Army surveyors under the command of Nelson A. Miles measured the distance 1,538 yards, or nine-tenths of a mile. For the rest of his life, Billy Dixon never claimed that the shot was anything other than a lucky one. His memoirs do not devote even a full paragraph to the shot. Forensic archaeologists have discovered that the guns in use at adobe walls included several richards colt conversions some smith and wesson americans and at least one colt 45 pistol then new on the frontier along with numerous rifles in calibers 50 70 50 90 44 77 44 henry flat and at least one 45 70 also very new on the frontier more hunters came in on the third and subsequent days so that by the sixth day the garrison amounted to about a hundred men those in the camp might have experienced it like a siege, though sieges were not part of Comanche warfare or battle strategy. Nevertheless, Indians were close by during the days after the initial attack. Quana was wounded, which might have taken the edge off the attack, as was always the case with Comanches when the war chief fell in battle. The Indians retired soon afterward. As Dixon wrote, The Indians probably came to the conclusion that if they remained long enough, charged often enough, and got close enough, all of them would be killed, as they were unable to dislodge us from the buildings. Casualty reports vary and are not known with any great accuracy, although most agree that fewer than 30 total deaths inside the walls would be a close number. Within a week of the fight, 25 men headed to Dodge, including Hanrahan, Masterson, and Dixon, only to learn upon arrival that a relief party of 40 men under Tom Nixon had already headed south to bring back Mrs. Olds and the greater part of the men, and by now you've already heard what happened to Tom Nixon in the Dave Mather story. By August, the Troop of Cavalry made it to Adobe Walls under Lieutenant Frank D. Baldwin, with Masterson and Dixon as scouts, where a dozen men were still holed up. Some mischievous fellow had stuck an Indian skull on each post of the corral gate. The killing had not ended, however, as one civilian was lanced by Indians while looking for wild plums along the Canadian River. The next day the soldiers and remaining men left adobe walls heading south to join general nelson a miles main command on cottonwood creek the indians later burned adobe walls to the ground buffalo hunting ended in that region of the country just as the indians had planned the result of adobe walls was a crushing spiritual defeat for the indians though it was seen as a military victory it also prompted the u.s military to take its final actions to crush the indians once and for all within the year The long war between whites and Indians in Texas would reach its conclusion. The Adobe Walls fight was historically significant because it led to the Red River War of 1874-1875, resulting in the final relocation of the Southern Plains Indians to reservations in what is now Oklahoma. A monument was erected in 1924 on the site of Adobe Walls by the Panhandle Plains Historical Society bat masterson's first stand-up gunfight took place on january 24th 1876 in sweetwater texas he was attacked by soldier corporal melvin a king allegedly because of a girl named molly brennan who was accidentally hit by one of king's bullets and killed king died of his wounds masterson was shot in the pelvis but made a complete recovery and settled in dodge city on june 6 1877 Masterson tried to prevent the arrest of a certain Robert Gilmore, who was known to the locals as Bobby Gill. In order to do this, Bat somehow managed to wrap his arms around the girth of the three hundred and fifteen pound City Marshal Lawrence Edward Larry Degger, thereby permitting Bobby Gill to escape. Masterson was grabbed by friends of Degger and pistol whipped by the balloon shaped lawman. The following day, Masterson was fined twenty five dollars for disturbing the peace. Bobby Gill, the cause of Masterson's fine was assessed only $5. During July 1877, Masterson was hired to serve as under sheriff to sheriff Charles E. Bassett. Sheriff Bassett was prohibited by the Kansas State Constitution from seeking a third consecutive term. With the job up for grabs, Masterson wasted no time throwing his derby into the ring. The sheriff's race became particularly interesting when Masterson's opponent turned out to be Larry Digger. On November 6, 1877, Masterson was elected County Sheriff of Ford County, Kansas by the narrow margin of three votes. Within a month of Masterson's election, on December 6, 1877, Ed Masterson replaced Larry Degger as City Marshal of Dodge. Together, the Masterson brothers now controlled the city and county police forces. Sheriff Masterson got his term off to a roaring start on February 1, 1878 by capturing Dave Rudabaugh and Ed West, who were wanted for an attempted train robbery two more of the train robbers were caught by bat and brother ed on march 15th but the tandem law enforcement effort came to an abrupt end when 25 year old city marshal edward j masterson was shot and killed in the line of duty on april 9th of 1878 ed was shot by a cowboy named jack wagner who was unaware that ed masterson's brother bat was in the vicinity as mortally wounded ed stumbled away from the scene Bat Masterson responded from across the street with deadly force firing on both Wagner and Wagner's boss Alf Walker who was holding a gun. Wagner died the next day but Walker was taken back to Texas and recovered. The local newspapers were ambiguous about who shot Wagner and Walker and this led some later historians to question whether Bat Masterson was involved. However, the recent locating of two court cases in which Bat Masterson testified under oath that he had shot both men adds credence to the idea that Bat avenged his brother. More violence followed on October 4, 1878, when a variety actress named Dora Hand, known professionally as Fanny Keenan, was shot and killed by James Kennedy, son of the wealthy Texas cattleman Mitland Kennedy. Sheriff Masterson's posse, which included Wyatt Earp and Bill Tillman, captured Kennedy the following day after Bat used his rifle to shoot him in the left arm and other posse members killed his horse. When the 1880 Dodge City Census was enumerated, it revealed that Masterson was then living with one Annie Ledoux, age 19, who was described as his concubine. City Marshal James Masterson, Bat's younger brother, was listed on the same census as living with Minnie Roberts, age 16, also quaintly described in the same way. Not long after this census was taken, Bat Masterson received a telegram from Ben Thompson, asking Bat to save Ben's troublesome brother, Billy Thompson, from an almost certain lynching in Ogallala, Nebraska. Billy Thompson had shot the thumb off a man named Tucker, who, despite missing a digit, managed to fire back and seriously wound Billy. Masterson took Billy Thompson out of Ogallala via a midnight train bound for North Platte, Nebraska. In North Platte, Masterson was provided with assistance by no less a personage than William F. Buffalo Bill Cody, who promptly offered to help. According to Masterson, both he and Billy Thompson were given a royal welcome and were immediately taken in charge by Colonel Cody, who found a safe place for us to remain until he could outfit us for the trip across the country to Dodge City. The finale of the Billy Thompson episode was reported in the Dodge City Times, which noted that W.B. Masterson arrived from a visit to Ogallala this week. He says Nebraska is dry and many people are leaving the state. He came by wagon and was accompanied by Texas Billy Thompson. The latter has recovered from his wounds. Masterson spent the remainder of 1880 in Kansas City and Dodge. On February 8, 1881, he left Dodge and joined his friend Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, where he also met Luke Short for the first time. Earp, Short, and Masterson worked as faro dealers, or lookouts, at Tombstone's Oriental Saloon. Masterson had only been in Tombstone for two months when he received an urgent telegram that compelled him to return to Dodge City. His brother Jim Masterson was in partnership with Alfred James A.J. Peacock in Dodge City's Lady Gay Saloon and Dance Hall. Albert Al Uptograph was Peacock's brother-in-law and bartender. Jim thought that Uptograph was dishonest and a drunk and demanded that Peacock fire him, but Peacock refused. Their disagreement grew until threats were made prompting the telegram. Masterson arrived in Dodge City on April 16, 1881 and accosted Uptograph and Peacock. Recognizing Masterson, Uptograph and Peacock retreated behind the jail and exchanged gunfire with Masterson. Citizens ran for cover as bullets ripped through the Long Branch saloon. Other individuals began firing in support of both sides until Uptograph was wounded. Mayor Al Webster arrested Masterson. Afterward, Bat Masterson learned that his brother Jim was not in danger. Uptograph recovered. The shooter who hit Uptograph could not be identified, so Masterson was fined $8 and released. It was unclear who fired first. Citizens were outraged and warrants were issued, but Bat and Jim Masterson were permitted to leave Dodge. Soon after, Masterson was appointed City Marshal of Trinidad, Colorado in 1882. He had hardly settled into a -a 75-a-month marshal's job, when Wyatt Earp needed Masterson's help to prevent the extradition of John Henry Doc Holliday from Colorado to Arizona. Masterson took his case directly to Colorado Governor Frederick W. Pitkin who listened to Masterson's appeal and finally refused to grant Holliday's extradition. Masterson's rescue of Doc Holliday and his nightly moonlighting as a Faro dealer spelled doom for his career as City Marshal of Trinidad. On March 28, 1883 a local paper noted that there are now two bankers running for city offices, Mr. Taylor of the Los Animas County Bank and Mr. Masterson of the Bank of Faroe. Both have a large number of depositors, one of a time depositors, and the other receives his deposits for keeps. The voters of Trinidad got the message from the paper. On April 3rd, 1883, Masterson was defeated by a lopsided vote of 637 to 248. His term as City Marshal of Trinidad expired just in time for him to come to the aid of his friend Luke Short, who had been run out of Dodge City by the mayor, Masterson's longtime enemy, Lawrence E. Larry Digger. Within weeks, a group of gunfighters recruited by Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp descended upon Dodge City. The result of this gathering reinstated Luke Short in Dodge. Before disbanding on June 10, 1883, Luke Short, Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp and five others posed for the historic group photo that was immediately dubbed the Dodge City Peace Commission. This photo is the one we use for the episode thumbnail. From left to right standing William H. Harris, Luke Short, Bat Masterson, William F. Patillon. Seated from left to right Charlie Bassett, Wyatt Earp, Michael Francis Frank McLean, and Cornelius Neil Brown. Masterson finally called it quits with Dodge City and made Denver his center of interest. In Denver, Masterson dealt faro for Big Ed Chase at the Arcade Gambling House. In 1888, he managed and then purchased the Palace Variety Theater. It was probably there that Masterson first met an Indian club swinger and singer called Emma Moulton, born as Emma Matilda Walter, near Philadelphia in 1857. The pair subsequently lived together, and it has been widely reported that they married in Denver on the 21st of November, 1891, although no record of the marriage has ever come to light. It was during this time in Denver that Bat and his friend Luke Short became involved in boxing. Bat was at ringside during the John L. Sullivan-Jake Kilrain heavyweight championship fight at Richburg, Mississippi on July 8, 1889, and we'll cover early prize fighting in another episode to come. Bat was not there merely to observe the action. He was the designated timekeeper for Kill Rain and came under fire from some sources for how he handled his role. Reportedly, Bat saw to it that Luke Short, Johnny Murphy, and 12 other good men were scattered around the ring where they could do the most good in case of an emergency. Despite his wide acclaim as a boxing authority, Bat had a consistent habit of backing the loser in nearly every championship fight he attended between 1889 and 1921. Jake Kilrain was no exception. He was defeated by Sullivan in that championship fight. On September 7, 1892, Bat Masterson, Luke Short, and Charles E. Bassett attended the John L. Sullivan-James J. Corbett championship fight in New Orleans. According to a Dodge City paper, Masterson bet on the winner while noting that Charlie Bassett and Luke Short were among the notables in attendance. Bassett bet his money on Sullivan. This was probably the last time that the three friends got together. Both Short and Bassett would be dead in less than four years. Masterson was in Jacksonville, Florida on January 25, 1894, acting as a second for Charlie Mitchell during Mitchell's heavyweight title shot at the champion James J. Gentleman Jim Corbett. As usual, Bat was backing the wrong man. Mitchell was knocked cold in three rounds. Masterson briefly moved to New York City in 1895 to serve as bodyguard for a millionaire named George Gould. Batt wrote his Denver pals glowing accounts of fishing trips with the Goulds on their yacht and announced his intention to remain in New York City indefinitely. On June 6, 1895, a Denver paper quoted a friend of Masterson's who observed that Bat has at last fallen into a dead easy game. But the dead easy game didn't last. Masterson was back in Denver on April 6, 1897, serving as a deputy sheriff of Arapahoe County when he got into an election day dispute with a man named Tim Connors. Masterson drew his pistol, and Connors attempted to seize it. During the scuffle, the gun went off, and a man named C.C. Lauderbach was shot in the left wrist. On April 9, 1899, Masterson became a partner in a boxing club called the Colorado Athletic Association. Within only a few days, Masterson was frozen out of the organization by his partners. He retaliated on April 18th by founding a rival boxing club, the Olympic, with himself as president. Masterson received favorable media coverage from a Denver newspaper called George's Weekly, where Masterson was employed as a sports editor. By June 6th, 1902, Masterson was back in New York City, where he and two other men were arrested on a bunco charge. Masterson and his companions were accused of fleecing George H. Snow, a Mormon elder, out of $17,000. Two days after his arrest, Masterson complained to a reporter that this fellow gargan who arrested me is a warm baby. In his mind, he thinks all people are suckers. That's the trouble with these mush-headed coppers. Give them a political job to keep them from starving and they think they own the earth. No sooner had these charges against Masterson been dropped than, on June 15th, 1902 he was arrested again for carrying a concealed weapon fortunately for him an invaluable friend alfred henry lewis turned up at this point no man ever had or ever would do as much for Bad masterson as alfred henry lewis it was lewis who got his brother william eugene lewis to provide masterson with employment as a columnist on williams newspaper the new york morning telegraph his column masterson's views on timely topics concerned sports in general and boxing in particular. The column appeared three times a week from 1903 until his death in 1921. In 1905, Alfred Henry Lewis published The Sunset Trail, a fictionalized biography of Masterson. Alfred Henry Lewis also introduced Masterson to President Theodore Roosevelt, and the two formed a friendship that resulted in Masterson being a frequent White House guest and also included regular correspondence. President Roosevelt also arranged for Masterson's appointment as Deputy U.S. Marshal for the Southern District of New York. On February 2, 1905, Roosevelt wrote Masterson a letter which concluded with the lines, You must be careful not to gamble or do anything while you are a public officer, which might afford opportunity to your enemies, and my critics, to say that your appointment was improper. I wish you to show this letter to Alfred Henry Lewis and go over the matter with him. Bats served in his $2,000-a-year job until August 1, 1909. And it was entirely on the up-and-up. On April 2, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson asked Congress to declare war on Germany. One week later, Theodore Roosevelt asked President Wilson for permission to lead a Rough Rider-type regiment against the Germans in France. While Roosevelt was waiting for Wilson's answer, he got some kidding from his friend Masterson, who wrote Roosevelt on May 14, 1917. I wish you would arrange for an appointment with Tex Rickard and myself to meet you at your office when convenient. We want to tell you how to organize your European expedition and how to win your battles when you get there. On July 2nd, 1921, Masterson attended his last heavyweight championship fight. It was the so-called million-dollar gate promoted by Tex Rickard in which Jack Dempsey defended and retained his title of heavyweight champion of the world. Three months later, on October 7, 1921, silent-screen cowboy star William S. Hart visited Masterson. They were photographed standing together on the roof of the New York Morning Telegraph building and went back to Masterson's office, where he asked Hart to sit in his chair and pose for a second photo with him. According to Hart, I did so, and he stood beside me. Mr. Masterson was sitting in that same chair 18 days later when he heard the last call. Hart subsequently cast a Masterson lookalike as Masterson in his biographical film, Wild Bill Hickok, which was released in 1923. Bat Masterson died at age 67 on October 25, 1921, at his desk from a massive heart attack after writing what became his final column for the New York Morning Telegraph. 500 people attended Bat Masterson's funeral service at Frankie Campbell's Funeral Church at Broadway and 66th Street. Masterson's honorary pallbearers included Damon Runyon, George Tex Rickard, and William Eugene Lewis. Runyon was a close friend of Masterson's and offered this memorable eulogy. He was a 100%, 22-carat, real man. Bat was a wonderful friend. He was always stretching out his hand to some down-and-outer. He had a great sense of humor and a marvelous fund of reminiscence and was one of the most entertaining companions we have ever known. There are only too few men in the world like bat masterson and his death is a genuine loss masterson was buried at the woodlawn cemetery in the bronx new york city his full name william barclay masterson appears above his epitaph on the large granite grave marker in woodlawn thus ended the life of bat masterson but the legend persisted in addition to an array of novels and historical pieces 11 films have included him as a central character, played by notables ranging from Marlon Brando to Keith Larson and Joel McCrae. And in television, the Bad Masterson TV show starring Gene Barry, ran 108 episodes between 1958 and 1961, starring Gene Barry in Masterson’s character as Gambler and gunman. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We'll cover more Western gunfighters in future episodes of The Quick and the Dead, including Harry Tracy, Kid Curry, and Wyatt Earp. Thanks for listening to our show, and we'd like you to know that we've launched a new show called 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This show brings you entertaining short stories from writers like Hans Christian Andersen, Mark Twain, Rudyard Kipling and many others and it's intended to be enjoyed by the whole family. It can be especially useful for car trips with kids ages 8 and up when you're seeking an intelligent way to share a story and get their opinions on it. Homeschooling on the road, so to speak. Apple users can find it on iPhones and iPads by searching Apple Apps for the Apple Podcast, downloading that, then searching for 1001. You'll find both our shows there. Android users can search podbay.fm for 1001 and get us there go ahead and subscribe it's free and you get a reminder every time we launch a new episode thanks for joining us until next time this is your host and storyteller John Hagedorn and this is our story